Film runs through our veins and continuously makes us interact with it. I'm your host, Edward Frumkin, and this is Real Print. In this episode, Big Sky Documentary Film Festival features programmer and filmmaker Michael T. Workman discusses the themes of labor, vulnerability, and performance in his works and avoiding the tropes present in personal films. Finally, in today's concluding thought, I talk about entering to more art house and experimental cinema environments. Some portions are recorded on Zoom, so bear that in mind when you hear the audio and enjoy the show. Thank you for having this great virtual Big Sky reunion, Michael. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, as I don't know how much you have listened to Real Print, but I always begin with my guest. What is your first film memory? Oh, wow. Um, man, I feel like I have a cliche one. I, I think it was seeing um, like probably one of the remasters of like Star Wars, like The Empire Strikes Back in... Um, in the Wilma Theater in Missoula, where I grew up, where we also have screenings at Big Sky at, in the old version of that. Um, yeah, I think I have fragments of a memory of watching that when I was a kid. Yeah. And then my other early memories are all horror movies scarring me that I should have been watching that like a friend or um, an older brother forced us to look at. Um, those are the other early memories. Those are ones that are more vivid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what about like maybe um, at times, like like why did you even get into like the scary horror ones like, at such a young age? Oh, it was not by my choice. I would say it was definitely like friends and older brothers' friends who would be like watching something and then they would be watching it and then I would you know, get sucked into it through, I don't know, the feeling of, it's like a train wreck that you can't look away from. It's something that's like, uh, something that you know you shouldn't be watching. And so it's really hard when you're a kid not to watch it. And then, yeah, it just haunted my memories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of those films is like one of my favorite films of all time So now. So yeah, that was The Shining. Like, I think we watched that in, in second grade at a birthday party at night like a vhs we just yeah so that was a shocking one but less scary than like watching chucky or like it or um the texas chainsaw massacre uh those were ones that i watched way too early yeah so they well, need to get them out of the way later in life yeah. watching at such a young age and- yeah i've revisited a lot of them actually um so I'm, I'm fascinated by the it story. I, I just don't feel like any of the renditions have been things that I like in the end. Like they're not very good. I mean, the Tim Curry version's terrifying, um, but that's like just childhood trauma at this point that I think it's still terrifying and I don't like clowns. Uh, but yeah, um, I'm trying to think of the other ones. I haven't seen Chucky yet. I haven't had the brave, the courage to look at back at that one yet, but. And uh, how have those formative experiences made you want to pursue a career within 
the film industry? Yeah, I mean, I don't feel like, I mean, I think I like decided on film pretty early, but I got there through like a circuitous route, I guess. Like I, I was not a very good like reader. Um, I wasn't like very good at school um, when I was a kid. Um, I like to like draw and play video games basically. And I, I think like video game storytelling was like the first like real uh, experience with like story and narrative that I had gotten into. And um, I, for like a while I was like, I wanna be like a video game journalist. And so that's like how I got better at like reading and writing really was like writing things in like the fifth grade that were just like imaginary reviews of things and then and then my friend who was wealthier than me had they had a uh, a camcorder and this is probably around in like the seventh grade and they had he had showed me like a dvd that he made like a really bad dvd of like something that he made with a friend and i was like blown away by it i was like you can do that oh my god and so that, like, basically, like, for the two years after that, we spent, like, a lot of weekends making, like, horrible movies with our friends, just, like, terrible derivative things that made us laugh that were probably really offensive. Um, and and then I kind of, like, kept going through high school with it. And then I had a, I had a teacher in high school who really like was like, you're good at this. And nobody had uh, ever told me that really at, about anything. So that was like really like life-changing for me. And um, and so I like kept pursuing it more seriously. Um, and then I got involved with the Big Sky Documentary Film Festival um, around that time um, because I was in her class and um, they were doing a program for high school students. This is probably 2009. Um, uh, they were doing a, a, a program for high school students where high school students would make like a short documentary under the mentorship of a programmer there. And so I did that and I met um, Travis Morris, who was the director. Well, he was the festival coordinator at the time, but he then became the director of programming at Big Sky. Um, and I made a really angsty short documentary um, called An Anonymous Rebellion about two of my friends who were graffiti writers in Missoula. Um, and, and Travis kind of really exposed me to a lot of documentaries that really excited me. Um, one of those that I remember really vividly early on was like The King of Calm, um, which I just had a conversation with a friend of mine. Um, about that at IFF Boston, about how like amazing that film is and how well it holds up still. Um, and then also he showed me like Dark Days and um, Last Train Home and Up the Yangtze. And I was just kind of really blown away by them. And it really got me into documentary filmmaking. Um, but then I went into um, undergrad. I, I uh, went to University of Montana and I, I, my main degree was a BFA in fine art. So I was making mostly conceptual art during undergrad and doing a lot of video installation, sculpture work, some printmaking. Um, 
and doing a little bit of like filmmaking on the side. So I did like a short documentary profile of a friend of mine um, who was an artist who did a lot of like performance art events and happenings in Missoula called uh, Constructed Situations that played around a little bit. So that was like my first kind of more like serious documentary, I would say. Um, and then after undergrad, um, I was actually writing a script about like an underground professional wrestler because I was really, I had read uh, this book by Chris Hedges called um, Empire of Illusion. Um, that was kind of all about like the kind of like society of the self and like this kind of like advanced capitalist society of like further, I don't know, stratification and the things that um, kind of like the, the terrible things that like we become uh, invested in to distract us from like the horrors around us. And he had a chapter on, um, on underground professional wrestling and uh, well, it was just professional wrestling and the storytelling of it and how, you know, in the nineties wrestling, like really started to take on this. Um, it started to take on this, uh, the stories of like the people who, the reflections of the stories of the people who were like consuming the media. So like, instead of it just being like about like Iran and Russia versus the United States and like the French or whatever, and these like very like nationalist um, kind of stories, which wrestling was like all about, like prior to that, it became like a lot more like reflective of the working class and the working class issues in the United States. So like, there was a lot of wrestlers who were like, or there was like a wrestler who was um, like a, uh, like a prison guard and like the like good old boy, like Stone Cold Steve Austin, who's like your like tough uncle who's like pounding beers and like, given justice back or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is really fascinating. Um, and I've always been, you know, interested in, in issues of the working class and, and also in really interested in subcultures um, and never really been interested in wrestling. And so I was writing this script about it and I was like, I don't really know what, what, um, like I'm not writing this script from like a place of experience and like I think my interests and in work at the, the documentary film festival you know I've been always fascinated by like authenticity like whatever that means even if it is you know just a feeling rather than truth um and so I was like I need to find a you know a group of wrestlers and um and like just like film with them for a little bit and use that as like a source for writing. And that's when I got, uh, that's when I found Spokane Anarchy Wrestling, which is the wrestling group that um, I ended up making a film about that were my you know, first kind of like festival film really um, from Parts Unknown, which profiles one of the, the guy who founded that basically. Sorry, that was a very, very long winded way of getting up to speed to, to, to to my films yeah that's a great introduction i'll talk about big sky later but i just want to talk to you as a filmmaker right now as you spoke like a great path to get to where you are with now leading to from parts unknown like why did you center about jesse manson instead of like the other members of the spokane wrestling academy 
Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so like I said, I when I started it, I I thought I was making a fiction film. And um and I I went there for like I went to a match, they had one match a month, and I went for six months, basically once a week. We would drive over to Spokane for a show and then drive back to Missoula in the middle of the night. It's like a three and a half hour drive. So there's a lot of like three getting back to Missoula at 3.30 in the morning type things, which I wouldn't do now probably, but I was, you know, 22 then and like a little bit more um, hungry, I would say. Um, and yeah, so I have been filming with them for a while. I would say about like five, four months into that. So after like the fourth show, I was like, I don't actually want to make a fiction film anymore. I want to make a documentary. And I had been filming the whole time and I had gotten to know people. I actually got pretty close with, um, with um, Jay, Jay Lawson. So Jay is, is Jesse Lawson, who's the main character's cousin. He's in the film. Um, I was very close with him. We kind of like bonded on um, like a mutual love and collection of of retro video games. <laughs> um, and so he has like this den in his garage that's just full of like old consoles and old games and pretty much like just hangs out there with his friends getting high and playing games. And so he had like we had been talking and like we me and my my producer and sound recordist Sean are both like interested in that so like we went over there and you know smoked a little weed with him and uh played games and chatted about life and whatever um and and so we had been filming with Jay a lot after that because we he was he was really interesting and like thoughtful and and the person that we were closest to. And Jesse was kind of avoidant of us. We had met him the first time we went out there. He was just like introduced as like the dude who found, um, founded the league um, and, and didn't, he didn't really want to be filmed. And he was like very upfront about that. He was really kind about it, but he was just like kind of avoidant and like didn't really want to be in the film necessarily. And then like we filmed with both of them and Jay was like, you should really film with Jesse or try to like, he had like interesting things to say. And we had got like tidbits of Jesse's story from other people and from Jesse, just like talking to him, like off the cuff. Um, and when about six months in we filmed that scene that is at the middle of the film which is Jesse's like retirement match and that we were more focused on Jay for the beginning like going into that shoot and then Jesse at a certain point was like just came up to me and was like hey man um do you want to like film me uh putting my makeup on like I never let anybody like see that and like it would mean a lot to me because it was just, like supposed to be his like final match and I was like hell yeah like, like yes definitely and so we filmed that scene where he's like putting his makeup on in the bathroom and then he kind of just like gave us access after that so we had like then we were following him and Jay throughout that whole night and that's where really where like the film started to like form into like what it could possibly become 
Um, and so we had filmed that scene and it was like definitely our strongest scene, like him giving his speech and it was, it had the most emotion in it. And so then we just set up an interview with Jesse and he was like game for it and um, got him to sign a release and um, just kept filming with him. And I think, you know, in the end, like we, we had always wanted to make a film about one wrestler like a more of a profile I mean I was like really influenced I mean in a very cliche sense by like like the wrestler like Darren Aronofsky's film um like I wanted it to feel like a portrait of a person and like a sensitive portrait of a person in this like hyper masculine like performative space um and so we had always wanted to profile one person it was really about like finding who who would be the person and and Jesse is just one of the mo most like emotionally articulate people that I've met and in, 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 in that space. And he's just really thoughtful and thinks really differently. And to me, he just became like a really perfect documentary like character because he could like speak to a lot of the issues that me and Sean were really interested in talking about in the film. And um that was that that to me was like this is this is the kind of like the emotional core like I could see a film being made about that mm -hmm. and so then we like we we just decided to focus just on Jesse it was a great scene you know in the makeup because like we don't like try to show the vulnerabilities that the, we all go through as human people and like can you talk about like the theme of vulnerability as well as having the work that you do is getting popular and more recognition, but the person themselves is uh, deteriorating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I will say that I think like um, wrestling is like actually a really like vulnerable art form. <laughs> and that's something that like I have gained a lot of respect for like while making this film, like, yeah, I think it's actually, it's, it's a really weird dichotomy of like really violent, hyper-masculine and also like kind of homoerotic like performance um, that actually is like a, a performance that's like when it's done right, it's like a performance based off of like care for the other person because you're like actually trying not to hurt them. Like you're actually trying to get through the night and give people the best performance possible while like taking care of them you know like the becoming a good wrestler is like becoming a good performer and knowing how to like play a crowd and then also being able to like not like destroy like and hurt your opponent you know and like in wrestling it's like when people like really get hit on purpose it's like what they call like you get like a receipt which means like a receipt is like, hey, like you you fucked up basically, like you shouldn't have like done that move in that way because like that hurt me. And so like that's me during the performance letting you know, you know, which I'm not saying that like I support that necessarily, but I, I did find that really interesting that there's like this real tension between like what's being performed and what's actually going on um, with the wrestlers and in the community. Um, and I feel like with this film with like Jesse is like such a vulnerable person in it. And I like thank him so much for like 
like being that way around us. And it was, I think it was like a really hard thing for, I, I mean, it wasn't hard for him to do in the moment, but I think it's like hard and scary to like put yourself out there in that way in such like a public way, especially knowing that like your community is going to see the film. Um, but I think like with Jesse, that one of the things that like really drew us to him is that he's just so open about his vulnerabilities in a way that like most men aren't like, and I'm not saying like most men like outside of his circumstance, I'm just saying like in general, I don't think most men are as honest and vulnerable as Jesse is about what's going on in his life and where, and, and where he's at emotionally. And, and so to me, it's like Jesse was like a manifestation of that kind of tension in that I, that I saw in wrestling too, where it's like, you know, there's like a lot of vulnerability and care, but then there's also like, it's juxtaposed against this like hyper-masculine, really like violent um, thing. Um, and I, I mean, I feel like for me, the documentaries that I'm most interested in really like have to go there like they have to get to the point of vulnerability and it and and get deeply in beyond the surface of somebody to like get to where like they tick to understand that and because for me it's like I want people to like when they're watching my films to like see themselves in the story or see people they know that they love and care about and I don't think you really get there unless you like dig deep and it and to me it's like you know when I when I went to the the Stanford MFA program and we had to like really like push out movies quickly for the first year we had to make three shorts in in a year um, and one of those became favorite grace but to me I really struggled in that environment because I couldn't spend the time developing relationships with people um that I could get to the point where they trusted me and that we could get to those like deep inner like character, like uh, traumas or, or motivations and vulnerabilities that like are really relatable to like everybody, even if they don't, even if people aren't as open or as vulnerable as the people on screen, like they're still registering their own experience in that. And so to me, it's like, really really important that I spend time with people to get to that point because that to me is where I get most like connected to a story and most like excited and my favorite documentaries almost always do that mm -hmm. and uh, as you said earlier how wrestling is such a performative sport this is like a two-part question um how do you separate the performative and reality and or how do you merge to performance and reality in that film? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess like in documentary, it's like always a performance, but it's also always reality in some ways. Like, I mean, I think that's the same. I mean, the, the, the separation between the two forms to me is like, it's not totally arbitrary, but like, it's really malleable. Um, and I'm not then like a person who's like really interested in like, like overt performance in documentary in my own work, but I like really love it in certain people's work when it's like done right. Like Bombay Beach is one of my favorite 
films of all time like Bisbee 17 is like also a film that's like majorly like important for me and has me thinking a lot of, a lot of things right now um, for a new project um, but I've never been super interested in in having that in my work but to me what's interesting is like finding people who are performative on camera but like very themselves and like can't not be themselves like I would say like all of the characters in like from parts unknown favor and grace and meantime excluding myself like all the main characters um are like can't not be themselves so like they there's a level of like authenticity in the in how they come off on screen and and because they're able to be like vulnerable in their like facial expressions in the way that they like talk to somebody while there's like a camera around and that doesn't always like that doesn't that's not always true when you're filming but I think for me like I'm still like interested in like a verte observational approach where I like film a decent amount and I like take those moments where the camera is like maybe less like creating like less of a performance in the um in the character or in the person on screen and and that doesn't mean that like the camera is not um isn't like an instigating force in it. Like I think with like meantime, like the camera is like an agitational like force. Um, and it's like creating the situations. It's it's manifesting the scenarios in which like me and my dad can talk about these things. Um, whereas like in Favor and Grace and in From Parts Unknown, the camera is much more passive. But like Jesse and like and uh Angela are still like performative in nature like they're still performing for the camera to some degree but their their performance like they're just like good actors you know that are just like being themselves you know and to me that's like the types of films that I want to make like that's like important to me because again it gets to the point where it's like people hopefully can start like deeply relating to them because there is like this, this, this feeling of authenticity. And I know that authenticity has like a lot of, it's a loaded term in documentary. Um, but I mean that as like a perception of authenticity, you know, something that makes you feel like, like you're not like questioning the, the sincerity of like what's happening on screen. And that, that to me is like important. Um, because I want people to like relate to somebody like they would relate to somebody like going to like an AA meeting, you know, mm -hmm. like to me, that's where like collective like healing and like relationship building like takes place when we like get past, you know, the superficial bullshit that surrounds us all the time. And we really get to know somebody and figure out like what ticks. And that's what makes me excited as like a human. And that's what makes me excited as like a documentary filmmaker. Now I want to weave into Favor and Grace as it was one of the projects he did at Stanford with Adrian Burrell. And uh, uh, what led you to Angela and Alicia Sadler? Yeah, so um, 
I made that film with um, with Adrian Burrell, who's like a really talented filmmaker and artist in the Bay Area. He's from Oakland. Um, we we got along really well. He's a good friend of mine, and we had share some like political beliefs around like policing and abolition. And um, we had the opportunity to collaborate on a film and co-direct a film together. And so we like decided we wanted to do that. Um, and we we chose each other as partners in crime for that. And then we were going through like film ideas and a lot of them had to do with like policing or like um, rituals of death, which that didn't become a film or hasn't become a film yet. Um, and so we were just like going through ideas of like, well, what can we like film? We only had really like two and a half months to make this film. So from like getting the idea all the way to finishing the edit, we had, it was a really, really short time frame, which is, I wouldn't do that again for an observational film like this because it was just really hard to get all the footage that we needed to, to make it feel full. Um, which just given that we could really only shoot for like, a, I mean, we shot for like 10 days basically. So um, yeah. Uh, so Adrian and I were like going through ideas for films, like a big issue was like getting access to things in a quick amount of time because of the time constraint. And uh, Adrian had like, unfortunately he was, he is and, and was then still in a lawsuit with Vallejo PD um, because he um, was filming his cousin getting arrested in Vallejo and a cop officer like uh, assaulted him for filming it totally legally. Um, and yeah, so there was like a video of that live stream that kind of like went viral. And so he was already in a lawsuit with them. And so he had no, he, he knew um, the Ramos family. So that's Alicia Sadler and, and the Foster family, um, which is Angela Sullivan. Um, and so we, we were ta in talks with them like we went to some meetings we went to the city council meeting we just got to know people kind of letting them know like what we were doing luckily adrian already had relationships with people so that access process wasn't super long because they already trusted adrian and and like through that like i they gained like um like my trust was gain to or well they they learned to trust where they trusted me through adrian basically and so um yeah so we then like kind of decided that we wanted to make a film about you know like the basically the family that nobody wants to be a part of which is um you know the group of families who have lost loved ones to police violence and in the bay area that community is really strong um and people who have lost loved ones or and have settled or finished their lawsuits like are still involved in organizing and still helping other families through it and still like fighting for justice um and so that was really compelling to us and um we had started following alicia and angela and um, getting to know like both of those stories and um, the film 
we realized that like the film was like a little bit too big. And so we had to like focus it down. We wanted to make it more of like a collective portrait, but for like a 10 minute short, it's really not um, possible. So we then just decided to like make it more kind of focused through Angela's story and then to get to know some of the other people through that, like Alicia and, and, and kind of the Ramos family story. Um, and we really wanted to like show the community and the, the strength and the power of that community and, and, and like the dire need for like some sort of like move forward for justice and to change like a system of violence and oppression that is omnipresent and, and specifically like targets like poor people and, and brown black people. Um, so, I mean, Angela was just like so open and, and caring like of us and like allowed us to film so much with her and in so many vulnerable moments um, that like, um, it really like became more about kind of Angela and the, and the foster family story. Um, and, and we had happened to, it's just like one of those documentary serendipity moments, we had just happened to be um, filming um, during the time where a lot of the kind of DA's decisions about the Foster case, about Ronald Foster's murder were coming out and a lot of actions were happening at that time. So, um, so that just kind of like by chance, it was like, we have more of a film in this area. So like, this is where we're gonna, we're gonna focus on. Mm -hmm. and we wanted to do something more for it with it but and and keep filming but um that was like we finished filming in the end of february 2020 and you know finished editing this version in middle of march 2020 and then the lockdown happened so um so we just stopped filming <laughs> we couldn't really film that it wasn't things happening in the same way so the film is what it is now <laughs> yeah that's how it goes i knew it was filmed sometime 2020 because it was mentioned two years later based on the synopsis and yeah. that i do also want to mention about the cinematography like it, particularly like in the courtroom scene and the scene where alicia talks to andra where like you know how to like not necessarily center on Andrew, but finding reactions and also to like we know what's happening like from the audio like we don't need to see Andrew all the time like how do you find other people's reactions or know the right camera placement when you do these type of moments yeah I mean I think that's really hard that's like the art or like the the jazz of 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 documentary cinematography or like verte observational shooting. Um, I mean, I think for me, when I'm thinking about like when to move the camera, I'm, I'm like, I mean, the first thing I like want to know is like as much information as possible about what's happening and, and what the like possible run of events will be so that I can find times to get like reaction shots and shots of other people around things that I can, use as cutaways so the more i know going into it the more equipped i'll be to like know when the times are when i like don't get coverage of like the primary subject but i would say like 
I generally like hold as much as possible on the like source of like our, our primary source of like the audio, like Angela and um, Alicia um, and Paula, who's Paula is Ronald Foster's mom. Um, and then um, like in moments where it's like, you know, something else is happening, like that I, I know I, I likely won't use like I won't need to like show that's when I like get a lot of those shots so it's like the the trickery of of documentary using using shots from other moments to cover that um but then it's like if I collect like enough different types of emotions like I can you know use the emotion that was felt in the room at that time based off of somebody's face that that was captured or a reaction um to it but yeah, I mean, it's really hard doing that. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, it's really present in like, from parts unknown is shot a lot like that too. Um, what was interesting is like, um, meantime isn't like that was a hard, that was a different style of shooting where it was like, I didn't really have the ability to have like reaction shots, like because I didn't have a camera person. So everything had to be like static long takes. And if there are cutaways, they're like very, very few and far between. Mm -hmm. I think there's like three in the whole film. Well, we'll get to meantime later, but I have okay. a couple more questions with Favor and Grace. I, as you worked with Adrian, like who will be working more with the on-screen participants? Like who will work more behind the scenes with the technical aspects like sound and camera? And like, how did you work it out together? We, we split everything. So Adrian shot probably about half the film. I shot probably about half the film. Then um, we switch off of sound and we both had relationships with people. I think Adrian for the most part had more relationships with them. And so it was doing a little bit more on the producing side of things in the beginning. And then, and then as I like developed relationships and, and, and built trust with the community, I was able to take on a little bit more of that. And now I'm because he did like so much in the beginning, I do like a bit more in the in the phase after the film. So like now I have I'm more of like the primary like contact to like the families. Like if we get like the film license, like I'm the one that will like go out and like give them the checks and like let them know and like ask them if it's okay and, and whatnot. So like um and check in with them and, and Adrian checks in with them too because you know we're all part of this community now mm -hmm. as the film wants to show the strength of the community like there are unfortunate moments where we have to show like graphic moments like the cell phone footage of uh, cat daddy's death like how do you make sure that uh, you have it when it's needed and not to re-traumatize audiences when you present the literal snuff films yeah we thought a lot about that scene we never wanted to like actually show anything and so we but we wanted to like we wanted an emotional moment that like captured just like the fucked up violence of of policing and and of this like type of murder um without actually showing anything and so like we cut that scene to feel like more 
like nondescript and abstract and then intercutting that with like lights because lights are really the only thing that you can see and then like not having like anything else in it like if it if you could kind of like tell what was going on that's when we were like no we don't want to include any of that so but but like signaling what was going on without actually like showing it was really important to us and we didn't want it to feel like re-traumatizing and at the same time we wanted it to have teeth still and like be you know have a punch in the fact that like this is really fucked up and needs to stop um yeah and so it's just a balance i think you know i don't know if it's like totally successful in that um but for us like when adrian and i hit that in the edit we're like yeah that's 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 the cut of that scene at least and it didn't change much after that um and yeah i mean we wanted to feel and, and be like more metaphorical than literal so and uh, i was trying to think to, oh now i remember um about the theme of uh, not having much lights in like beginning in several sound shots with not much lights because it's unfortunate that many of these accents took place in these type of settings like can you talk about like the theme of having like lights in terms of like actual physical outdoor lights or even the candlelight for the sign of hope yeah i mean i think for I like films where like the metaphor, the visual metaphors are like relatively open, but that they're like consistent. Um, and I think Adrian is similar. Adrian's like a very poetic and also like symbolic artist, which was like a really amazing collaboration to have um, because he's always looking for like metaphor and symbolism. Um, to me, um, like the lights symbolize like life, you know, like a life force. Um, and, and I think, you know, with like a candle, that's like a more literal ritual of that. And that was one of like the reasons why we like intercut that scene of like before, right before Ronald Foster was murdered with like the flashlight light and the other lights that are moving around and then the street lights because we want to like make that connection of like these lights that are like fading and lives that are like leaving um basically um and then i think it's like you know some of the things are just serendipity of like you know we wanted to shoot around vallejo at night and it's like not super well lit and it like has that like feeling of like danger in the unknown and um, and that's something that just came through, I think, really naturally in the space. And then we found kind of those metaphors more in the edit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very something that I want to make sure again to this guy. And now with meantime, what led to like showing like your most personal film with Tim? So I, I mean, like, you know, I, I'm like a, I've, I've been a programmer for a really long time. So I like see a lot of films and I've never been like a big fan, to be honest about like personal films. Um, like, I think that a lot of the times personal films feel more like they're for the filmmaker than the audience. 
And I think that there's like a place for that. But to me, I'm just not interested in those types of films. Like I want films that I'm like, I'm communicating to people outside of myself. It's my like artistic vision, but I want to like be like communicating to other people. And, and sometimes like there's like a lot of tropes that I've seen in like personal films that I really wanted to avoid if I ever did one, but mostly they just made me not want to make personal films. And I'm really more interested in other people than I am interested in myself <laughs> like I'm interested in myself but I'm interested in learning about myself through the relationships I build with other people because that's where I like feel like I grow as a human um and so I I made this film as my thesis at Stanford which is like we get a year to develop a film versus two and a half months which is much more that kind of time frame that I strive in it's like I need time to like brood and like stew over ideas and like refine my approaches and then also like develop relationships with um the people in the film um with this film that was a little bit easier I mean that was one of the things that drew me to it was like well I don't have a lot of time and I don't want to spend all that time getting access um and building trust and I had found myself home in Missoula because of the pandemic um I moved back for what I thought was going to be the summer in June, 2020 um, and moved into a house with some friends. Uh, and then it just kept going longer. Um, and I ended up being there until February. So I was there for what, what is that? Like seven months basically, um, which is the time frame that I shot this film over. And I was spending a lot of time with my dad. Um, helping him with stuff but mostly just like trying to you know spend the most time with him that I could um and he was one of the only people that I was like not distance from um other than my roommates so he was like the only other person outside of that world that I was seeing a lot and I was trying to make a, a different film that involved him that he was excited about about like a cult that was a drug re well it was, so it was a drug rehabilitation program in 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 this area in San Francisco in the San Francisco area um that he went went to when he was a kid that turned into a, a cult and I was really interested I've been interested in this story I'm still interested in this story but I'm in a little bit of like trying to figure out how I can make it happen because there's another production company who's now bought a bunch of the rights to archival um but so I was like working on this film about this program that my dad was in and I did like an interview with him and actually part of that interview is in the film under some archival footage. And then when I found out that the archive had been bought, which, you know, that's a whole nother issue about documentary and like who gets to own what like people getting to own exclusive rights to archival material to me is like super super ethically dubious um especially when it comes from like major corporations which in this case it did um and so I was like oh, I can't make that film and while I was filming with my dad I kind of was thinking a lot like this isn't the first thing that I made with my dad so in undergrad I made a video installation called Mr. Workman that was in the same apartment and it was a single shot of him eating 
a is a 20 minute film it's a single shot of him eating a t-bone steak and grilled asparagus which is a meal that um i remember eating at the trailer that we lived in when when my parents got divorced my dad moved into a trailer park on the other side of town so i split time there and that was a meal that we ate a lot and so i was like thinking about a lot of like the space in between our like loved ones and like the ritual of like the dinner and like the place of like the the like supposed like patriarch at the at the dinner table <laughs> and um and so I made that film and then I made a photo series with that and then I shot this other weird art film about an obsession with uh or the obsession with military objects and kind of like early incel culture um before that became like a big thing um, in his apartment too. That was like a fiction film. Um, and then I just realized that like, you know, a lot of the stories that I, and people that I'm interested in, I'm interested in because like some of them like, remind me of my dad and about his like level of like not, not being able to be anybody other than himself. And, and him being like such a core fundamental person to my understanding of the world and and to my like honestly my love for people and and my interest in people and my interest in like humanistic documentaries and so i kind of like decided that i was like well maybe i should just make this film just about him and i during this time and it was like a you know a time where i felt like i didn't know and i don't know how much time i have left with him and his health is deteriorating really quickly and and I wanted to also just like have an excuse to make like a document of him that I could have from a selfish reason. And and I wanted a, an excuse to really like in a structured way, like talk about things and spend time with him. And so the film became like a, a way for me to like spend structured time where me and my dad were really like collaborating on something together, which felt really good. And it was like a, a place where like you know it comes through in the film where we're both like you know we're like working on the apartment that he is renovating for his landlord we're like working on his car we're going skiing we're like doing these things we're like building things together and that was like always a place where me and him bonded and so i just like realized that like i wanted to make like a film um that was like capturing that that would capture him but and would be like for me but the film product wouldn't be for me necessarily like I wanted it to be like a film that wasn't hopefully like too like narcissistic or self-involved and also like was something that like people outside relate to so that's kind of like where I was like yeah, that's that's why I want to make this film as you do your best not to be narcissistic with include yourself like are you one of those filmmakers that like to be on camera and one that or one that doesn't as i have some guests who don't like being on camera like no. in their own docs yeah i fucking hate being on camera yeah no it's really ironic that i force people to be on i don't really force them but i definitely like you know uh, the gently like push them to be on camera, you know, or like entice them uh, to be on camera. Um, and some people want to be on camera. I don't. That's not 
that's not the place where I'm like very interested in being. I'm really interested in, 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 in being behind the camera. So it was really hard for me. I think in the end, like I played around with like how much I'm involved in the film. There was a point where I was like, had written voiceover, which felt like super wrong. And is not the way that like I, it didn't feel authentic to me at all because I don't really like write or think in that way. And I felt like I was like trying to be like Chris Marker or something. I'm like, that I'm not like Chris Marker. It's like, and that's great. Like people who can write really good, a personal voiceover in documentary films, like good voiceover, they're like few and far between and, and incredibly talented um, and, and incredible writers. And like, that's not me. Like I'm a visual, like dyslexic kid who likes art and, and movies. And so like, I have to work in that, in that way. And, and I also luckily had like a really good friend of mine, Johnny Owen, who's, who, uh, who screened at full frame with me and also went to Stanford with me. And he, uh, he told me at one point, he sent me a very harshly worded email after like watching a cut with a voiceover in it. And he's just like, don't do this. This isn't you don't do this. And I was like, thank you. And that was the best advice that I got the whole time honestly and so I took it out and I started taking myself out more and focusing more on my dad and that felt like where the film was because the film really like some filmmakers are really good at turning the camera on them and making that feel authentic and I'm not and I know that it's a limitation of mine but I'm not interested in that necessarily like I'm interested in other people and so like the footage that I had was screaming that it was like this is a film about your dad and you just happen to be in it and to me, it's also like a film that's, it is a personal film in that it is like my, like my dad. But the, the thing to me that's the most personal about it is like, I use like my like aesthetic guiding principle is like, this is my point of view of my dad. This is my perspective of my dad that I'm trying to get the audience to embody, right? And so that comes through of like, you know, with the shots, especially where I wasn't, on sticks like I wasn't on a tripod and they're not static shots where like it's just an embodied shaky handheld camera like I really wanted those moments I didn't want the whole film to be in that style but I wanted those moments to feel like we are now like taking on my perspective right and to me that was like I'm going to show you as a viewer like the way that I see like my upbringing and how foundational that was for me and this person who I love and care about, I'm going to show you that person through my perspective rather than telling you about that person, you know, um, which is totally fine. It's just like, that's not the way that I work. Um, and so, um, so that's where I really like figured, figured that out. And, and, you know, like, there's a lot of, like, I played with like using reversal shots of me, like reaction shots. And I was like, these don't work at all. Like I'm the director. Like I know I'm thinking about the fucking batteries and the focus right now. And I could see it in my eyes. Like my dad over here is like just being himself. And I'm just like this stiff filmmaker. <laughs> you know? So I cut a lot of that stuff out. And, um, and I think the film is better for it. I mean, it's definitely better for it. I wish I could like dig more into myself in this medium, but like, I'm just not that filmmaker. Yeah, no one has to be a Michael Moore or a Kirsten yeah. Johnson sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You do you. And what there's a lot of shots of the snow falling down in between like 
you're driving or and the the moments you have with your dad like what is the theme of snow and or the purpose of those shots yeah i mean to me that's like the probably like the most important metaphor of the film um i mean it's it's both a metaphor and like to me it's just like a character attribute of my dad so like I always had related my dad to snow. My dad's like obsessed with skiing. That's why he ended up in Montana, ran away from California as a kid. Um, and and during the ski season and while skiing, he was always felt like the most like himself and the most like vital. Um, whereas like outside of that, like depression and anxiety really like were much more of a battle but when he was on the mountain and when he was in the snow and when the snow was good you know my dad was doing good so to me like the snow is like a direct relation of like my dad's well-being and I wanted to shoot I specifically wanted to shoot on days when it would snow like if, it, if I knew it was going to snow like I would plan a shoot with my dad because I wanted to capture like a bit of that like hope that I know that he feels in those times when there's snow on the ground and when it's snowing um, and I wanted that to be like a character in itself. Um, and then I think like metaphorically, like, you know, there's lots of ways that snow can be interpreted, but you know, the film is really a lot about memory and also about like things that are fleeting and are, are not ever able to be like recorded um, permanently. Um, and snow is always like melting and snow is always like obfuscating things. Um, it's always covering up something um, and then revealing something and changing the way that like something looks all the time. So it's like it's some force that like actively changes our environment and the way that we perceive it all the time. Mm -hmm. And so to me, there's like a, a metaphor of memory in that. Um, and then, I mean, there's other like, you know, the there's clouds clouds passing through the mountains I, and, and like that type of thing that's like a metaphor that is also a similar one I think of about a lot about obfuscation of what we see what we don't see how that changes our perspective of our environment um how that's not fixed how none of it is fixed um that that was really important for me and there's lots of like shots that I'm obsessed with there's some of my favorite shots I've ever shot that aren't in the film, but that like have more of that feeling too. Um, but they just didn't work, you know? Like it's like, unfortunately like the thing of documentaries or there's always like a few things where it's just like, yeah, the cut is better without it, but man, do I wish that I could have figured out a way to incorporate that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so the, that's kind of it. And also like going along with From Parts Unknown, your film does tie into like your works themes of labor and also masculinity as there was a moment where Tim says that I try my best to like be tough after the abuse they got from your grandpa and also seeing a lot of young images of you and other like quote-unquote ideal men like can you talk about like the theme of masculinity or even at times like what it means to discovering your maleness yeah no that's a really good question i mean i'll try to answer it as best as i can i think first of all like the way that i like have viewed my dad as never as a patriarch 
So like I like my grandpa on my mom's side, so not my dad's dad, um, who's like a very, very foundational person in my life was like absolutely the patriarch of that family. And, and in our family, it was definitely a matriarchy. <laughs> like my mom was definitely like the ruler. She was the king of the castle in our house. Um, and she really held it together and like held it down through like a lot of hard shit. And, um, and my sister, my older, I have an older sister, Carrie. Um, she, she's like in the film and, and the archival stuff. Um, she, she's also like the matriarch of the family. So like, they're the two more like powerful, I would say people in the family. And then me and my dad are somewhere else below that. Um, and so for me, it's like my uh, opinion or like view of masculinity, I feel like was very different because my dad was definitely not like the patriarchal like figure that a lot of people's fathers are in the United States. Um, and at the same time, he, he never wanted to be that. But he wanted, and I think this comes through in the film, he really wanted to be a provider and, and, and couldn't. And, you know, that's like a thing. It's also patriarchal and like is a, is a largely, that's something that's like largely a burden that like men are expected to carry, which is, I think, toxic for everybody involved. Um, and so he could, he never felt like he could fulfill that kind of man, manly expectation. And then he's also just a really, really sensitive person. So he's always had this really challenging relationship with masculinity um, because he was grew up in the 60s. He grew up in California. His grandpa or his dad was, you know, in like early tech and is an asshole. Um, and, you know, my dad was sensitive and when you're in that environment no no everybody is going to just like you know put you down and that trauma is so deep inside of him um because he feels like he needs to you know be this like hardened man who doesn't you know show emotion and he can't do that and he shouldn't but he wants that you know because it's easier it's easier to it's easier to fit in in this world than it is to be somebody who doesn't and um and he knows that intimately um but he can't be any other way you know and and you know to me this film is like there is like this tension of masculinity between like me and my dad having a hard time talking about these things and at the same time like really talking about these things and like being vulnerable about it um so, but also like that challenge is like, you know, in the, I think the silence of the film a lot, which is like, a, I think like a stereotypical, like masculine thing of just like, we're not saying anything, but to me, it's like, also like, we're saying a lot then. And, and that space and that silence is really, really important. Um, and, and so, I mean, to me, it's just like, I, I don't think this is like, I think there is a tension in masculinity, but I think this is like an atypical story of masculinity in that like, it's a really, really complicated perspective on it. And knowing my dad's experience with it, like being, being the person who couldn't be the breadwinner in the family, who, who didn't have like this like domineering um, 
control over the the, the family structure. Um, it just was a different person in my in my head than you know my mom even who like held the ship down. It would be somebody who I think is in a lot of ways more masculine in like the patriarchal sense of of being the matriarch family. She's like you know, um, and that's not to criticize my mom at all. Like we needed that. <laughs> we really needed that in our family. Um, but I think the thing that one of the things that I learned from my dad really is like vulnerability and sensitivity. He's the most sensitive, one of the most sensitive people I know. Um, and, and I wanted that to come through in the film. Well, the things you address in Me Time actually works. And now go a little briefly with your stuff with Big Sky. Like you have dedicated to the vessel sense, as you said, to many anonymous rebellion and uh, <laughs> like going through the ranks and uh, like what do you love about like going back to you know you did took a break from like 2019 to 2021 based on your LinkedIn yeah yeah I mean Big Sky to me is like everything it's in my blood it's like a place that I became a filmmaker at you know I learned more through that experience and through working at Big Sky then I've learned doing anything else. Like, um, you know, I learned so much from like Travis Morris, who was, who was the one who hired me, but also like Doug Haas Davis, who founded the festival, was like a programmer there. And then a lot of my other colleagues and filmmakers that I met through the process are, you know, those are like the things that like shape my aesthetic view and and I, that's how I learned what like documentaries could be um so yeah I mean like I started in 2009 with a, an anonymous rebellion and then yeah I started working there through college and then I um I was hired by Travis Morris and then Travis got hired I think in 2014 I was still in college in like November before the festival, which happens in February, he got hired to VidCon, which is like this huge YouTuber convention that is actually organized out of Missoula, strangely enough, but happens in Anaheim. And so he left and I was like 20, I think, and got thrust into his position <laughs> for the rest of the season. So basically from November to February, I had to like, have the like interim director of programming hat on um which I guess I did well I mean it was like a survival thing for the festival at the time um and then after that Doug Haas Davis and I kind of like shared the role of programming to varying capacities depending on the year up until I left um in in 2019 um yeah I mean to me, it's like Big Sky, like I, I don't really have any interest in working at other film festivals. Um, I'm a filmmaker and an artist first and like Big Sky was like the best job I could get in, in Montana and is something that I cared really deeply about and allowed me to like build a network. And, um, and I, I love curation and I like programming in that way, but um, but yeah, I mean, to, I Big Sky to me is like such a unique festival. I've traveled to a lot of festivals through 
my own films through um, through Big Sky, you know, working representing the festival as a programmer or as a programmer. And to me, it's just like the only festival I'm interested in because I just feel like we've been able to maintain our integrity um, of what we are, which we're like a filmmaker focused festival that focuses really on creating a really positive filmmaker experience with good community screenings and, and facilitating the opportunities for people to develop lifelong relationships with each other while they spend time together in this place. Like I think of it as like a cold ass summer camp for filmmakers um, during the winter. Um, and, and I've seen those relationships like blossom. Like this year we had a film premiere, a feature film premiere that um, the producer of which, uh, the producer met the director of it at Big Sky in like 2016. And that's where the film, you know, that's how they got on board and then it like premiered there. And it's just like cool to see that type of relationship building that happens in a really like non, hopefully a non-competitive environment because a lot of these market festivals are really, really stressful for filmmakers to be at because the stakes are really, really high. And so they're not as fun and, and you don't have the opportunity to really, really get to know people in the same way. And for us, like that's really important. Um, and, and, and to me, the payoff was always like getting, you know, the best part about film festivals is, is hanging out with other people and getting to see their work and having fun. Um, and, and feeling like reinvigorated to make work more films because it's fucking hard to make documentaries and it is exhausting and um, there's very little payback for finishing a film and, and film festivals are like one of the things that should be like this feeling of celebration for the, the fucking suffering that you've gone through to make your films, you know? And, um, and so, yeah, like that's, that's how I've always like viewed Big Sky, you know? And, and I love Missoula, I love the community. You know, I love showing people around, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just didn't realize how much of New York based people will come to Missoula as I just mm -hmm. moved to New York in mid January. And just last week I saw Chloe Bai at a screen of Fire Love and New Directors, New Films. Wow. Yeah. Like it was great that I could just meet people and just see how people dance. Like I don't have to worry too much of like the power structures. Like fiction, I'll be more starstruck, but because of my connection with Robert Greene when I was his student, I feel more like just say people by their first name instead of saying, like introduce, hey, Netflix executive Chloe Bai or Oscar nominee Jessica Kingdom. Like it's just easier to say the people first name and know that we have jobs. Like that's what I love about Big Sky. And also like as you have films played there, like how do you make sure you don't like you make it like more fair as well as like some of your Stanford cohort, like um, John Aon, David Zucker, and Cindy Linden. Like, how do you make sure that your films like are have a fair odds like an other film? Oh yeah, I mean, to, I that's why I'm the features programmer. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I I was like, I don't, I'm not want to do the reason I, I one of the main reasons I didn't want to do shorts at all. One is like this year it was like 
it's just too much work at this point. The film festival gets over 2000 film submissions each year. You, I don't believe that you can do a good job as a director of programming as that being one position who does both of those things. Like it needs to be split up because it's just too much work and you can't do it well. Um, but the other thing is like, yeah, I have too many connections right now to close friends who are making a lot of short documentaries that I was like, I, even though like I'm the director of programming, I want to have zero say over what the shorts are. So that was Doug's decision. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't tell him people I knew. I didn't like, I'm not really into that in general for for programming because like I don't want it to be a, a thing about nepotism and connections and like having a really fair competition to get in is is something that's core to the, our integrity as a film festival um, that like we program almost entirely from our open call and just because you're friends with us does not mean you'll get in which is puts is a really hard part of the job because like I, we all want to like please everybody but it's core to our integrity that it's like a fair festival and that like if you got in you got in based on your own merit not not based off of your connections so so yeah I just I didn't want to deal with shorts because I knew too many people making shorts and there was too much possibility for nepotism and I personally don't want to be in a position where I have to say no to a bunch of my friends I always have to do that each year no matter what and that's my least favorite part of the job um but yeah so that was just too much of a conflict of interest mm -hmm. so, yeah that's know. my least favorite part too when I'm screen when I'm a screener for true false because right. like so far like I'll make a lot more friends and a lot more mutual <laughs> filmmakers based in New York but like when I'm like here in the state like I have to be more hush than the midwest and yeah. like I do my best to be fair like I understand how like Aragon Hatch and Amir will and even Ron Robinson and Chloe Turner have these dilemmas too like they do want their best to be like show their best in new works but like true false and other festivals will be like I do have to be fair that it's going to have somewhat of a pre- established like not necessarily like through like 25 new faces or that have been laughs not necessarily an established like first like filmmaker with multiple features but it's hard but yeah I do just want to make that clear about my side thing as well and that I can't wait to see how found me away will be turned out soon as I saw that new web page like just to like explain what's that a little bit for people who don't know. Um, it's like a, it's a more experimental film that's all archival um, about, um, about a website where you can make a, basically like a glorified like Facebook profile. Um, that is called a mind file that has like information about, you know, you um, photos, documents that like with the hopes that like a future civilization will find it and have the technology to reconstruct your consciousness based off of that information and upload it to like a mind clone, which is like a robot um, or like some sort of like networked, like, I don't know, 
like a, a network consciousness that not makes it necessarily a physical manifestation of it. Yeah. So the film like right now follows like two people, um, the one who's passed away and one who um, is still alive and they have mind files and, and they've been like a big proponent of it. So mm -hmm. what was this partly inspired from your earlier works as a video game journalist? Yeah, when I was a video game journalist, I did have actually a podcast uh, actually, uh, when I was in the seventh grade with people that I used to play Xbox Live with, which is super embarrassing, um, but also really cool now. Um, no, it was, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm like always interested in like sci-fi and like technology, um, but I think my primary interest is more like I'm really interested in subcultures that are seem like on the edge and in the periphery, like seem like something that's like pushing cultural, like culture to the edge. And I'm really interested in like what those like edgy subcultures have to say about like society as a whole. Mm -hmm. Like that's why I'm like interested in professional wrestling. Like I'm interested in like how the themes of professional wrestling, yes, they're like very extreme, but what like that has to say about like American society. Um, and, and for me, like, I'm really interested in like mind uploading and people who believe in mind uploading because of like what it says about like how we collectively view the hopes and prospects of like technological progress. Mm -hmm. So those are like themes that I'm interested in, in, in that film. Yeah. Will this still be a short film? Yeah, this one will be a short, definitely. Okay. Yeah. Just making sure for big sky you're still gonna do features on you'll never do a feature I'm no sure. i'm gonna i'm trying to do a feature this summer that's what i'm trying to start so we'll see we'll see that's what i i want to make a feature yeah yeah okay i just haven't found i haven't i haven't got there yet to find the thing that i'm like this deserves to be a feature because i think there's a lot of features that are made that should be shorts and so i don't want to really make a feature that should be a short so okay that's my goal. I'm trying to make one still someday. Can't wait for what you do next. And before I let you go, is there a film recommendation I have for people that is for a movie that's not as well known they want to share to the audience? Oh, just in general. Yeah, in general. Wow. Whenever I get these questions, I just like blank. I'm like, I've never seen a movie in my life. Um, what are those? Uh, man. I mean, I can only really think of things that I've seen recently, um, but I think this film will be really well known, but I just saw, it's like another Daddy Problems film, but I just saw, um, it's called I Love You, Dad, um, at IFF Boston, that has like Patton Oswalt and it's a fiction film. And, but it's also like kind of based on a true story of, of the filmmaker getting catfished by his dad in order for the dad to like, reconnect with him it's like very like it's like a more like uncomfortable fucked up version of Ms. Doubtfire um which that was really great I really love that film and I think it's like going to be in theaters in like August or something yeah but, I think Magnolia acquired it so yeah I'll have to wait for it but in the meantime I just want to wrap up saying thank you very much for spending uh, like almost 80 minutes with me and yeah. hope that you have a good day yeah thanks for inviting me on here it's good to see you again
Today's concluding thought, entering into more art house and experimental cinema environments. I grew up nearby AMC and Regal Cinema Theaters. Unfortunately, I did not have much immediate access to upfront art house and experimental films. I did not know about the Chicago International Film Festival before a few years ago. I live an hour away from Gene Sisko Film Center and Music Box Theater. There was not much of a dynamic art house environment in my family and close circles. Before digging into independent films on Showtime, Stars, and the library, I only had the big studio films. This happened before I got Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. I am upset that I had to dig into them and the Criterion Collection. It made me feel weird that I was the only one with that knowledge before college. I even gave my high school film studies teacher, Mr. Buck, a copy of The 400 Blows and a list of Criterion recommendations after telling him about it. It was cool. At college, I know that a few more people would know about it. We had an excellent art house theater in Ragtag Cinema that I attend more than the nearby Regal. However, it was a mainstream US independent cinema environment, not much of the showing the lesser known indie filmmakers, and Ragtag did not show many experimental films. The only time they would have experimental films would be at True Falls. I also have friends that were into A24, but not interested in the indie distributors, Cinema Guild, or Grasshopper Film. Then when I moved to New York City, I knew that there would be many places playing movies. So I would purchase memberships to BAMP, MOMI, Film Lincoln Center, Metrograph, Rooftop, Films, and Film Forum. After each week, I became less interested and reduced my thinking about watching blockbusters. Spider-Man No Way Home is the only blockbuster I saw in the New York theater. Due to the many special screening events and film festivals, I am diving deep into the new normal of viewing art houses and experimental cinema. I wish I had that when I was a kid, but it's never too late. Due to that, I forget about the releases of the new Batman, Top Gun, and other blockbusters. I plan out on watching art house and nonfiction films more than thinking about the new John Mulaney and Andy Samberg Chippendale movie. However, Tribeca is happening soon. There will be many HBO, Netflix, and other high-profile films. I'm still adjusting to this puzzle the mainstream and lesser-known uh, independent and art house sphere. Nevertheless, I'm thankful to be actively participating in the non-fiction sector. I haven't been starstruck when I speak to other documentarians due to my background as medium, but I know I'll faint when I see Chris Paul, John Hamm, Diana Agron, and John Cho, among other stars at the fest. It is weird how things transition from being sheltered to, oh my god, I'll die if I don't go to X event, to being normal. We need to understand that no one is here for your entertainment purpose, and that everyone has a job to do. While some film quadrants fight for scarcity, others, like a documentary community, are supportive, tight-knit, and want to challenge you. It's a wonder how things come to be when you are in these circles, and I'm glad I went on this path. But I hope I don't sell out when I enter a Hollywood narrative atmosphere and still be the same Eddie as I am now and before. 
And that's today's concluding thought. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Real Print. This episode's music includes Continuum Mutation, courtesy of Kama, and Shimmering by Rafa Orchestra, courtesy of Epidemic Sounds. This episode is co-produced and edited by Anish Katu and Edward Frumpkin. Please check out this episode's notes and links, as well as reviews, award, and seasonal predictions and essays written by yours truly at realprint.org. That is R-E-E-L print.org. This is Edward Funkin signing off.